Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I will be reading verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. So for the reading from God's word this morning. We heard Gino at council a couple of weeks ago, and his, his background is in a different sort of church, maybe a little more like Ruthella's childhood or, or mine. I don't know if this means, but to me, when the sermon started, the, the coat came off, um, that meant we mean business, and if the tie got loosened, then you knew you were really in for it. So I don't know if we'll get to that point. I don't know if we'll get to that point today or not, but we'll see. At the beginning of my sermon last Sunday morning, I misattributed an old hymn, and I want to make a bit of a correction here. I attributed the hymn um, in times like these to George Beverly Shea. I, I have heard him sing it many times, um, and I know that he recorded it. It was a song that meant a lot to him and that was used often in Billy Graham crusades back in the day. But the song was actually written, both words and music, by a pastor's wife and homemaker named Ruth K. Jones. And she wrote it in 1943, when World War II was not really going very well quite yet. And it seemed like it might go on for a very long time. And it would be some years before it was included in a hymnal, but those words, in times like these, you need a savior meant something to her as she wrote them down, and they have stood the test of time. And surely, as we noted last Sunday, they are true. In times like these, in times like those back in World War II, and in times like these, with all that is happening in our world right now, we need a savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. We need both. As I said last Sunday morning, in times like these, we need a place to turn and we need a place to stand. And of course, last Lord's Day, we found such by looking at the 23rd Psalm, those ancient words that have echoed down across the centuries to speak to the hearts of so many of God's people under both the Old and the New Covenant. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
What a priceless remedy, those words to a weary soul. Only God can know how many people have turned to those words and found consolation and comfort in times like these or in times that they were enduring and struggling with, in times when there was an overwhelming sense of want in their heart, and they opened the Bible and read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Times when a bereaved family was struggling with their sorrow and their loss, and they took an old Bible, maybe one of those huge ones that used to be given out from the shelf, and they opened it up, and they read those words. Times when people who were traveling alone and far from home took a Gideon Bible from the nightstand at their hotel, and, and, and they just let it flop open and found that it flopped open to Psalm 23 because so many others had looked to those words for comfort. The list would be endless. And the idea that's communicated by these words speaks to our needs, whatever those needs may be, in sorrow and loss, in trouble, in anguish, in worry, in anxiety. It's a beautiful thing. It speaks to all of those and really... All of Scripture has spoken so at many times and in various ways, giving people the anchor that they need and giving them that place to stand. But here's the thing, and here's where we go off from Psalm 23 and on to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is a comforting image it's a beautiful picture, but it's not an image that springs fully formed out of the blue and into our minds. So if we are to find comfort there, how are we to go about doing that? It seems clear that God indeed wants to comfort us. God wants to encourage us. There may even be times when God wants to reprove, rebuke, and exhort us. But how does God do that? Well, if we stop and think about how we came to know that the Lord is our shepherd, it may be obvious that we receive this comfort, that God communicates this truth to his people through his holy word. Now, I'm not saying that God can't speak directly into our minds. He has done that in the past. He may do that in the future. And I'm certainly not saying that God does not just bring a text like that to mind if we know it. So many of us have memorized that, and I'm sure God's Holy Spirit has brought it to our minds at times when we didn't have a Bible. Although these days, if you have a phone, you have no excuse to not have a Bible with you wherever you go. But the fact is, we first came to know that the Lord is our shepherd and we need not be in want because we read it in scripture or we heard it preached in a sermon or some Sunday school teacher very faithfully got up and led us through that flannel graph story. God communicates this truth to our hearts through his holy word. And as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
And this is what we were reading about in our text this morning as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And that's the outline, really simple outline for this morning. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So speaking of the word, speaking of the gospel of God, these concepts are interchangeable. Paul tells his readers that it had to be preached, it had to be received or heard, it had to be embraced. It is the gospel in which they were standing, and assuming that those things were true, it is the gospel by which they were being saved. So we begin this morning, the gospel must be preached. Paul wrote of the gospel, the noun euangelion, meaning good message. It's you, you've heard Eucharist and eulogy and other words that come from the Greek with that EU at the beginning of them just means good. Sadly, um, we talk about euthanasia, which is good death, although one might argue that it's really not, that that's kind of a lie. But it's that same prefix, you. And the word that follows is from the Greek word angelos or angelion. It's, it's, it's message. So Paul says, I preached this gospel, this good message. And the way that he wrote it in, in the verse that's up on the screen right now, he wrote of the gospel that he preached... And in reality, the Greek word translated preached here is just the verb form of the very same word that he uses to express the concept of gospel. So literally, what Paul is saying here is the gospel that I gospeled. It is the good message that I good messaged to you. And I think he does this on purpose, not because he couldn't think of a better word. There are other words he might have used and does in other places. But here he's highlighting for his readers and for all of us the fact that the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel are actually totally inseparable things. There's an old book years ago, Good News is Foretelling. And the fact of the matter is, news is only news when it's told. If you know something in your head, but you're not sharing that with other people, it's not good news. It might be a good thing, a good thought, a good something, but it's not good news. In order for it to be good news, you have to take that idea from your head and actually express it to someone else, and then you've shared that good news with them. And the word of the gospel the proclamation of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, otherwise known as the gospel of the kingdom, is in fact intrinsic to what the gospel is. The proclamation is intrinsic to what the gospel is. So when the gospel is not being proclaimed, when the gospel is not being gospeled by the people of God in word and in deed, that good message has become, in some sense, something else, something less. Maybe in a pastor's study, where commentaries have become 
far more important than the text in a home where there's a beautiful leather-bound Bible gathering dust on the shelf while hours and hours of TV and YouTube videos are watched. Maybe in a church where music and entertainment have supplanted the preaching, the proclamation of the word as the centerpiece of worship on the Lord's Day. In internet memes and tweets. They used to say the media is the message. Well, in so many cases when people are taking scripture and incorporating it into internet memes and tweets, the media... The picture behind the scripture actually obscures and distorts the message that might have come through in the text of scripture. In all of these places and many more, anywhere that the gospel has ceased to be proclaimed as the power of God for salvation, the salvation of souls, anywhere where it has ceased to be proclaimed as the power of God for salvation and is being proclaimed for something else, something less. It has actually ceased to be God's good message. Faith, said Paul, saving faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone proclaiming the gospel? God's good message must be preached. Next, we see the gospel must be received. This is also in our text this morning. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Paul preached. The saints at Corinth received. We see that same pattern in other places, all through Scripture, really. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul wrote, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord of us being Paul and Silas in this case, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We saw exactly this in our study last year of the book of Acts where Paul and Silas preached the word of God in the synagogue at Thessalonica. And they reasoned with the people there from the scriptures for a space of about three weeks, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I want to slip away from my manuscript here for just a second because sometimes we have this, this um, way of looking at scripture where we start reducing the gospel down to possibly the simplest statement that we could find. And so, you know, there's been a tendency, even in the part that we're going to be looking at next week, I delivered unto you, first of all, or as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. So that's it, that's a gospel. That's not. 
and we can't be reductionist in the way that we look at this. We're going to see a really big statement about the gospel a little bit later in the message. And what we do with all of these things is we start to stack them, to layer them one on top of another of the other until we come to that place where we realize the gospel is expressed in all of the word of God. There's no sense in which Genesis chapter 1 or Revelation 22 are somehow less the gospel than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we can't just get so focused on some little piece that we stop seeing how God expresses his word, his will, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom in all of these scriptures. Well, in Thessalonica, they were explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, the anointed one. He is Messiah, Paul and Silas were saying to the Jews in the synagogue at Thessalonica. He is Lord, because that's how they understood that word. The Messiah was not simply Savior. He was that but the Messiah that they were looking for was Lord. And this is, by the way, the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Paul and Silas proclaimed that in Thessalonica, it led to a riot in which a mob rose up against them and set the city in an uproar. But even in the midst of that trouble, we're told in Acts 17, some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. They received the word, we read in 1 Thessalonians, in much affliction. In the midst of a riot, actually, they received the word. And they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul and Silas preached the scriptures. They preached the gospel at Thessalonica as at Corinth, and the gospel was received. They preached, it was received. It was heard. And since faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, the gospel did what the true gospel always does. It became the means of grace by which God gathered and saved and set apart people for himself. So the gospel must be preached and the gospel must be received. This part's really awkward and it's terrible grammar. I acknowledge that freely. You can take me to task later on, those of you who care about such things. But having been preached and received, the gospel must also be stood in. I say it that way because that's just the way the outline works. Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And this needs to be said. It needs to be said especially these days. We're going to be focusing in more on this when we come to Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures next Lord's Day. But it needs to be said because we've reduced the gospel to something which is really only at best a little part of the gospel. And we've robbed it of its power. We've robbed it of the power to be salvation for everyone who hears and believes. 
and needs to be said because the gospel is received in different ways. Jesus told a story once in which he represented the gospel of the kingdom as seed that a sower went out to sow. And some of that fell on the path and birds came and snatched it away, some on rocky ground, some in the midst of thorns, and some on good soil. Now understand, we've called this the parable of the sower in the past, but the sower is really just a mechanism to getting the seed, which is the same. It is the gospel in each case out to the soil, and it's the soils that are different. It's not the parable of the sower, it's the parable of the soils. And notice in particular, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, Jesus said, this is the one who hears the word, who who receives it, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So we have to talk about standing in the gospel because evidently it is possible for the gospel to be received in some sense that does not actually produce fruit. In the book of James, where Pastor Matt and I intend to go after we have finished off Revelation, this is described in terms of saving faith versus some other kind of faith that does not produce fruit and does not save. It's described in terms of saving faith and faith that does not produce the life that comes from true faith. James wrote, faith by itself, belief by itself, the kind of faith that we hear so often when a person who has no connection to God will say, well, yeah, sure, I believe in God. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, if it does not produce a life of holiness and obedience, James says, is dead. And he went on in that same context, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, as if these were two different things. Somebody could have one and someone could have the other. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And to further prove this point, he speaks to those who lay claim to some kind of internal belief that does not bear fruit in the real world. And he says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Neat. You believe that God is one? Even the demons believe that and shudder. Demons who know there is no hope of salvation believe more firmly in God than many people in the world today, and their faith in the reality of God makes them tremble. It makes them afraid for what they know is coming. But James' point is that even demons have a kind of faith, a kind of belief. They believe that God is one, and clearly... Demons are not saved by such faith. It's true then that the gospel must be preached and the gospel must be received. It is also true that those who receive the gospel must stand in the gospel. 
Those who believe the gospel must live in obedience to the gospel. And as soon as I say they must believe and they must obey, there's someone somewhere who's saying, wait a minute. But there is no contradiction here. In Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote, Through Christ Jesus our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, or the obedience that comes from faith would be a valid translation there, for the sake of his nation, of his name among all the nations, including you at Rome who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The gospel is meant to produce the obedience of faith. And speaking of judgment, to come in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul wrote that the Lord Jesus would be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the part where they would have taken the tie off. I just forgot. The Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel personified, the good news of God will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor, and theologian wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. There's another sense, too, in which we must stand in the gospel, and this is where we will be going next Lord's Day, if the Lord is willing. Peter wrote, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And John said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And it was exactly this sort of thing, this understanding that had Jude, the servant and the brother of Jesus, write, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Jude said, I just wanted to write a nice little letter about the salvation that we share, the fellowship that we share in Christ who has saved us. That's what I wanted to do. But I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We must stand in the gospel that has been proclaimed to us and that we have received. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We must stand in the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, because there are so many alternative so called gospels out there that actually pervert the grace of God into license, and in the end they do not proclaim, they actually deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, to turn away from, to fail to stand in the gospel is ultimately not just a turning away from the gospel, it is a turning away from Christ himself. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is an old, old problem. This is a problem that goes all the way back to the garden where a certain serpent approached Eve and said, has God really said that? That doesn't really seem like something a loving God would say, does it? And this problem of distorting the gospel of Christ goes all the way back. It was true in the first century church, it's true today. But notice here, and it's highlighted for you up on the screen. Paul does not say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the true gospel or the gospel and are turning to a different gospel. He says, I am astonished that you are deserting him who called you and are turning to a different gospel. So to turn to a different gospel is not just to choose one version over another, like maybe somebody prefers the Gospel of John from the ESV and somebody from the NIV and somebody from the King James Version. To turn away from the gospel is to turn away from him who called you. It is to turn away from Jesus Christ himself, the one who called us by his grace and said, come, follow me. I am astonished that you are deserting him who called you and are turning to a different gospel. See, Paul's concern was not for the message per se. It was for the message. But not for the message as an end in itself. Paul is concerned for the message that is being proclaimed because he is ultimately concerned for the one who is proclaimed in that message. And to borrow a phrase from pastor and author John Piper, it's actually the title of a truly excellent little book that I would recommend to everyone here. God is the gospel. The good news that we proclaim is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 as the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's probably the biggest statement that Scripture makes about the good message. It is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in every other aspect of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He died for our sins so that we could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, no longer blinded by our own sin. The fact that he rose from the dead for our justification. We needed to be justified so that we could stand in the presence of a holy God and see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Every other little aspect of the gospel, and they are all extremely important. But every one of them leads to this. God is the gospel. So if we turn away from the gospel, we are turning away from God himself. 
And ultimately we do that because we make gods of ourselves. We would rather worship us than to worship the living and holy God. It's also to turn from the only one who can save, as if we did not need a savior from outside ourselves to rescue us, as if we could save ourselves through therapy or some other means. And it is to turn away from the truth. It is to turn away from the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To turn away from the living truth embodied in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and to turn to that one who constantly questions, constantly, did God really say? Really? And that's why Paul said in our text, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Because the word which Paul preached, the word of the gospel was none other than the word, the Christ, the Son of the living God. God is the gospel. And it's there we find our place to stand. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I understand the impulse, the desire to say, well, all religions lead ultimately to the same God. But that's not the faith that we profess there is salvation in no one else. In Jesus Christ alone, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if you believe that, proclaim it, because it becomes good news when we speak it out in word and in deed. So we preach, and so you believed Hold fast then and take your stand in the gospel, the good message of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May we pray. Lord, speak to us by your word and spirit. And then send us out to proclaim that good message to the world around, wherever we go. Whatever circumstance you may lead us into, convince us of your glory reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. And give us grace to proclaim that good message to a world that needs to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.